0: The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World Episode 34 Crusades in the Holy Land Part 1 In the year 326, Helena, a woman in her late 70s, travelled to the Holy Land. It was claimed that Helena discovered the true cross at Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem. Fragments of the true cross were highly treasured in Christendom, and while some fragments remained in Jerusalem, others were taken back to Constantinople, where Helena's son, Constantine was the Roman Emperor. Constantine was an advocate for the religion of Christianity, a new monotheistic religion that had become highly popular within the pagan societies of the Roman Empire. Romans had persecuted Christians historically, but now the Emperor Constantine would put a stop to that. Constantine, supported by his mother, would build the Church of the Holy Sepulchre at the site of Jesus' execution in Jerusalem, which would become the most sacred place in Christendom. This would become a place of pilgrimage as many Christians would travel to the sacred church in Jerusalem. Constantine would make Jews feel unwelcome in Jerusalem. For the Jews, this was their sacred city long before the existence of both Romans and Christians and they would continue to try to regain access to the city with mixed results for many generations. In the early 7th century, the Sasanian Persians attempted to befriend the Jews in order to gain the force to overthrow Jerusalem which was still being ruled from Byzantine Constantinople but they showed no loyalty to the Jews once inside preferring to switch loyalties to the more powerful Christians of the city. The Byzantines would win Jerusalem back again but a wave of new people would approach the Levant this time from the south. The Muslim Arabs, inspired by the Prophet Muhammad, who had actually passed away around six years earlier, marched on and took the city of Jerusalem in 638, and in order to secure the city, showed tolerance to both the Christians and the Jews. Jerusalem was a holy city to all three of these Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, and of course, still is to this day. In fact, the Arab takeover of Jerusalem marked a period of relative good relations between Christians and Muslims. It is true that Christians were exploited financially by the Arabs, but in a comparative sense, aggression was low and tolerance was high. The Umayyads took control of the Rashidun Caliphate, the name of the Islamic state that had grown in the Middle East. After the Umayyads, it was the Abbasids, but the Abbasids became rulers in name only and their lands would actually be ruled by other Islamic dynasties. It would be the Fatimids who would march into Egypt and then onto Jerusalem, expanding their Shia Islamic state. Christians and Jews still enjoyed some freedom within Jerusalem and certainly experienced more tolerance than the Sunni Muslims of the Abbasid Caliphate who were not so welcome in Jerusalem anymore. In 996, the Fatimids took their 11-year-old Imam, Al-Hakim Bir Amarallah, and made him the new Fatimid Caliph. Hakim came of age and being concerned about the wealth of the Christians, he decided to persecute Christians and Jews instead, with the single most controversial act being the destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Some Jews and Christians pretended to convert to Islam to avoid persecution, but Hakim was probably not of sound mind as he would then actually start to persecute Muslims both Sunni and Shia. It may have been that Hakim was trying to start a new religion based on his own personal connection to God, but he had caused so much disruption by this point that he mysteriously disappeared one day, probably murdered by one of his many enemies. Even though the situation would improve in Jerusalem for both Jews and Christians in Jerusalem after Hakim's death, his destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre meant that this Holy Church could never be restored to its original condition and this was quite upsetting for Christians everywhere who would feel a great sense of loss and helplessness when it came to their sacred city. The Rise of the Seljuks The Seljuk Turks emerged from the lands of the Eurasian steppe and took control of the Abbasid Caliphate in their capital city of Baghdad. From there, the Seljuks would defeat the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, a battle which resonated through the ages as it would symbolise a defeat that would usher in a brave filtering of Turks into the Greek-speaking Byzantine-ruled lands of Anatolia. Two years later, and Jerusalem, which was under the rule of the African Fatimid Caliphate, was taken by mercenaries working with the support of the Seljuk Turks. The filtering of Turks into Anatolia was not sudden and would take place over the coming years, and it was really as a result of there being a succession crisis in the Byzantine Empire. Desperate measures had to be taken in Constantinople to prevent further crises that included financial and refugees. The Byzantine throne was usurped by Alexios Komnenos in 1081 and his empire was being threatened from all sides. Alexios recognised that despite the strained relationship that Constantinople had with the Latin Church that he would need to reach out to his fellow Christians for support against their common threats. This may have been music to the papacy's ears who had been looking for a reason to demonstrate Rome's superiority by comparison to Constantinople and effectively being asked to come to Byzantine rescue was a great way to demonstrate this. Initially, Alexios would try to smooth the broken relationship between Constantinople and Rome, before eventually sending a delegation to appeal for help against the incursions of the Turks, highlighting their Islamization of Orthodox Christian settlements in Anatolia and how it was an attack on Christianity. Mercenary groups from Western Europe had fought alongside the Byzantines at Manzikert, and it may have been that Alexios was looking for mercenaries to defend Constantinople from the potential attacks from various Turkic peoples such as the Pechenegs and the Rum Seljuks. The Pope at the time was Urban II. Urban did not have a harmonious relationship with the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV who tried to install an anti-pope. So Urban may have been encouraged to appeal to other Christian nations in order to create a bonding relationship and the excuse to support the Byzantines could have been just what he needed. Urban travelled to Aquitaine, where he would call a council of clergymen at Clermont in November 1095. He appealed to the clergy to offer support to the Byzantines, stating that Muslim peoples were taking the lands of Christian peoples, stating that they had committed murder and destroyed churches. He would urge the clergymen at Clermont to spread a message far and wide to all classes of people to offer their service in the defence of Christendom, which was slowly being captured by Muslims. Urban would portray the Turks as savage in their behaviour and that they would stop at nothing to maltreat Christian people, property and churches. Urban would call on the Christians of Western Europe to unite in the cause of their eastern cousins and to eradicate the Muslim hold over the Holy Land and the city of Jerusalem. So from the appeal of Alexios to the Pope, Pope Urban had turned this into an opportunity to invade the Holy Land. The invasion would be in the form of a pilgrimage, in the same way that many great Christians had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the centuries gone by. But this pilgrimage was to be conducted with a military aspect. The clergy at Clermont rallied behind Pope Urban II by exclaiming, Dius le voie. Translated, to God wills it. One particular priest called Peter of Amiens was inspired by the words of Pope Urban II, but we're not entirely sure whether he attended the Council of Clermont. We do know that he travelled around Western Europe, rallying up anyone who might be interested in taking part in a military pilgrimage to Jerusalem and many peasants and low-ranking knights answered the call. By the springtime of the following year, thousands and thousands had congregated with the intention of travelling to Asia. Peter of Amiens is more popularly known as Peter the Hermit, and he would be at the head of the pilgrimage. The story of this particular pilgrimage, known to history as the People's Crusade, doesn't read very well. A peasant army in search of wealth and fortune and absolution of personal sins set off for Asia and crossed through the Rhineland where they would massacre thousands of Jews, also seen as the enemy of Christians, for the purpose of this venture. It may have been that members of the Crusade may have seen the massacre of Jews as a means to steal their wealth and fund their adventure. Things did not improve for the people's crusaders. They continued east across Hungarian lands into the Byzantine Empire's territories, where they started pillaging in order to continue their quest. Despite the tensions between the crusaders and the Byzantine governor's troops near the city of Belgrade, the Crusaders reached Constantinople where their transport across the Bosphorus Strait would be facilitated by Emperor Alexios. The people's Crusaders were not best equipped to combat the Seljuk Turks, even though they had an unwavering belief that they could attack and defeat the Seljuks. They ended up besieged at a castle near nicaea where they were starved out and forcibly converted to Islam, or slaughtered. The First Crusade In the web of feudal Europe, where nobles and knights were somewhat tied to each other and dependent on each other's success, the defeat of the People's Crusade was not a good thing. The Count of Toulouse was Raymond the Fourth and as a deeply pious man, he was attracted to the idea of winning the city of Jerusalem back from the oppressive Seljuk Turks, who were not as welcoming of Christian pilgrimages as their Muslim predecessors. Other important noblemen and local rulers would also see the attraction, maybe believing that the failure of the People's Crusade was down to naivety more than anything. This new and more impressive group of crusaders would probably have been very aware of the great feudal successes such as Duke William II of Normandy's conquest of the Kingdom of England and in turn believed that conquests of the Holy Land could bring similar rewards for them. Another prominent name in the wave of new interest in the year 1096 was the Prince of the Norman Principality of Taranto a man called Bohemond, a very impressive looking man by all accounts, standing tall and looking strong. Bohemond was the son of a highly influential Norman during their Italian invasions called Robert Giscard. Bohemond had fallen upon hard times financially and he would take his young nephew with their forces to Constantinople to swear an allegiance to Emperor Alexios. Maybe a successful crusade would be the answer to Bouaimont's problems. In the north of France and in the county of Vermondois, the new Capetian Count was Hugh I. Hugh was the younger brother of the King of France, Philip I. Philip did not have a good relationship with the Pope Urban II and had been excommunicated but this did not stop Hugh from showing an interest in the crusade to the Holy Land. Godfrey of Bouillon was another nobleman from the north of the French kingdom who had actually been involved in the aggressions against the papacy instigated by the Holy Roman Emperor, Henry IV. Godfrey was so keen to be involved in the crusade that he conveniently forgot that the papacy probably disliked him and he sold Bouillon Castle in order to fund the assembly of a force that could join the rest of the Crusaders. His younger brother was Baldwin of Boulogne, who despite becoming the Count of Verdun, would pledge himself to his brother's Crusader army. There were many others, many of which had the image of the cross sewn into their military clothing and would make a ceremonial vow to symbolise that although they were preparing to fight, that this was still in principle a pilgrimage. Even though there was interest from the lands of the Low Countries, Germany and Italy, the First Crusade was mainly represented by Frankish noblemen. There were no national kings involved, but many great and important noblemen and knights, which was a considerable step up from the disastrous People's Crusade. The Crusaders made their way east in congregations from their respective areas of Western Europe, whether it be Northern France, Southern France or the Italian Peninsula. Most of the leaders had made huge financial sacrifices for the honour of taking part in this great military pilgrimage, all for the glory of the lands in Asia and the favour of God himself. When these armies started arriving in Byzantine territories, they too were starting to sap the resources of the lands that they were travelling through. Emperor Alexios had certainly not banked on so many coming to his aid. What had started out as a plea for mercenaries had turned into a full-scale war operation from the west and the priorities had changed from defending the Byzantines to conquest of the Holy Land. So Alexios tried to get the Crusaders to swear a solemn oath to not take any Byzantine lands reconquered but hand them back to the Byzantines and in return Alexios would support them with his empire's resources. It became clear that the Crusaders were in it for the spoils. They were indifferent about whether the people they encountered along the route were Jewish or Christian. Their resources were fair game in the grand scheme of things. It could be estimated that between 50,000 and a 150,000 individuals had to be entertained and ferried across the Bosporus by Alexios, but he managed to do it and with minimal harm done to Constantinople. Not all of the leaders from the West had been particularly gracious to Alexios, in some cases claiming that their allegiance was to the Pope and not to the Byzantines. The Siege of Nikia The man that had orchestrated the destruction of the people's crusaders was the Sultan of the Rum Seljuks, a man called Kilijarslan ibn Suleiman. Kilijarslan took the city of Nicaea as the Rum Sultanate capital city this being the same city that was the birthplace of the Nicene Creed in the 4th century, a very important doctrinal statement of the Christian Church. Nikia had now been in Turkish hands for the last 16 years and was therefore a Muslim capital. All of the Crusader forces and Byzantine allies converged on Nikia and launched their attack. Peter the Hermit would also be among the ranks of the Crusaders despite the disappointment of his last visit. Kilij Arslan was absent. He was off battling against the Darnishman Turks on his eastern border. So Nikia was being defended by the relief forces of the Rum Sultanate in Kilij Arslan's absence and it's possible that Kilij Arslan believed that the Crusaders were not going to be able to win the city after the ease of which the previous wave had been dealt with. Things were different on this occasion though. Now there was a better standard of warrior on their doorstep, probably in greater numbers and with the benefit of those who had had previous experience such as Peter the Hermit and the survivors of his crusade. This time the defenders of the Rum, capital city of Nikia, were defending their city while the severed heads of their compatriots who had rushed the Crusaders outside the city walls were being catapulted back over the walls, straight at them by the Crusaders. Kilijarslan was recalled by the weakening Nikians and some form of counterbalancing took place. The Niki Turks began draping the bodies of captured crusaders over their city walls so that the rotting flesh of their carcasses was in full view of the crusader army. Kilij Arslan then attempted a large counter-offensive but this was well anticipated by the crusaders and the counter-offensive was largely unsuccessful the siege was becoming incredibly arduous for both the Crusaders and the Turks. The Crusaders lacked the equipment to make a significant breach of the city walls, and so it would come to the Byzantine Emperor Alexios himself to blockade Lake Ascania, which was the main supply route to Nikia, and send in their highly influential military general Taticios, who himself was likely to have had a Saracen father, but sources disagree about whether he was Turkic or Arabic. What Alexios had done was a stroke of genius. Not only had he sent in one of his most influential generals in to negotiate the city's surrender directly, but in doing so he prevented the Crusaders capturing and destroying the city themselves. There were some mixed feelings about the capture of the city of Nicaea among the conquerors. The Frankish and Latin crusaders wished to fill their coffers with booty in order to fund the continuation of their crusades. For the Byzantines, it was far more important that this Roman city was restored to the Byzantines with all of its remaining value intact. So despite Alexios instigating the final capture of the city he certainly would not have succeeded without the Crusaders' siege and so if he was to prevent the Frankish plunder of the city then he would have to reward the Crusaders handsomely. Much like the Muslim nations themselves the Crusader divisions were enemies of each other back in Europe and there was little love lost between the Latins and the Greeks. However, this was a great victory for the Greco-Latin alliance over their Turkic enemies and this was achieved in June of 1097. The Battle of Dorelia The victory at Nicaea was just the beginning of the mission for both the Crusaders and the Byzantines. The Crusaders, rallied by the call to action from the Pope Urban II, were aiming for Jerusalem and the Holy Land. For the Byzantines, they wanted to reclaim their lost Anatolian territories that had been captured by the Rum Seljuk Turks. So the Byzantine general Tatikios joined our crusading princes that we mentioned earlier in the episode, on their way deeper into Anatolian territory. It was typical for the Crusaders to split up and travel in smaller groups, and the group being led by Bohemond of Taranto was being scouted by Kilijarsland scouts. If you recall, Bohemond was of Norman stock, but was among the Normans who established a state in southern Italy. He was travelling with his young nephew, Tancred, and the Duke of Normandy, Robert II, who was the eldest son of William the Conqueror. Bohemond was aware that something was afoot, but couldn't be sure what to expect. While Bohemond and his companions were camped a short distance outside the now abandoned medieval city of Dorileum, Kilijarslan picked this moment to strike. Bohemond was very quick to react and formed a defensive line against the attacking Rum Seljuk Turks but he somehow needed to relay a message for reinforcements because he knew he wouldn't be able to hold off the Turks indefinitely. Bohemond and Robert convinced their armies that they must stand firm and that the reinforcements would come. It would take five long hours and thousands of deaths on both the Christian and Muslim sides before Godfrey of Bouillon arrived and turned the tide against the Turks. Godfrey was the ruler from northern France who sold his castle to fund his crusade and we mentioned him earlier on. As the day grew old, more and more crusaders would begin to arrive on the scene and Kilijarslan knew that this opportunity was lost. Kilijarslan would not see another fruitful opportunity to ambush the crusaders any anymore after this episode. The Crusaders had successfully weathered this Battle of Dorelium on July the 1st. The Siege of Antioch The next leg of the journey would require the Crusaders to head across Anatolia towards the city of Antioch. The Turks had done their best to prevent an easy journey for the Crusaders by scorching the earth, and what's more, is that it was the height of summer and most of the Frankish armies would have had little experience of marching for days across hot and barren lands. They seem to have hugely underestimated the arduousness of the journey which not only took its toll on the Crusaders but also on their animals. Many of the heavy cavalry horses that the knights relied upon didn't make it and the horses that were used as beasts of burden had to be eaten. For one group of the Crusaders, it would be important to make contact with the Christians of Armenia and Syria that had been under Turkish rule themselves, but ready to support their fellow Christians from the West. This provided some much-needed rest and recuperation for the Crusaders. Godfrey of Bouillon was the man who helped to turn the tides against the Turks at Dorileum. His younger brother was Baldwin of Boulogne, and Baldwin would split off from the Crusader army upon contact with the Christians of Armenia, who welcomed him as an ally against their Turkish overlords. The city of Edessa was being ruled by an Armenian called Toros, and Baldwin was invited by Toros to stand alongside him and protect Edessa. Baldwin was very wily and, in very little time, had seemingly coerced Toros into adopting him as his son and heir before he overthrew and oversaw the murder of Toros and took control of Edessa for himself. Baldwin was now the Count of Edessa, and therefore the County of Edessa became the first state of Outremer. Outremer is a collective name for the Crusader states. While Baldwin was in Edessa, the bulk of the Crusader army had finally reached the city of Antioch at the back end of the year of 1097. The population of Antioch contained many Christians and it's difficult to determine the mood of the Christians within the city knowing that their home city was about to come under attack from fellow Christians. It is likely that the greedy and ambitious crusaders cared little for the religion of particular individuals within the city. It would have been more likely that there would have been a with us or against us attitude. Antioch was much better prepared to resist a siege than Nicaea, because it relied less on importing resources due to it being more self-sufficient. The Crusaders had suffered hugely due to the hot summer march across Anatolia. Now they were going to have to deal with a cold winter while trying to strangle a strong city. The siege of Antioch became a war of attrition. It was a case of who would weaken enough to be susceptible to defeat first The population of Antioch benefited from the protection of their city walls, even though they doubled as their indefinite prison walls in a manner of speaking. The Crusaders had to send a significant contingent into the wilds in order to gather food for their survival. The Turks would see this as an opportunity to attack the remaining besiegers and attack the foraging party. Both Crusader groups barely came through these encounters. Things did not improve for the Crusaders as they tried to survive, determined not to give up after coming this far. During the course of the winter, some of the party were dying and others were surviving by practising cannibalism. Europeans were trying to send supplies in, but really all that this was doing was prolonging the agony and there was no real sign of Antioch falling. The governor of Antioch was a man called Joesion, who had seemingly become increasingly concerned about what he may have perceived as the devil within his city, the Christians. Joesion would persecute the Christians, and this is likely to have been to ensure that they didn't dare rebel from within and jeopardise the security of the city. Yehissian may have been aware that the Atabeg of the Turkish city of Mosul in northern Iraq, a man called Kurboa, was approaching with a force to assist Antioch. Kurboa decided that he would attempt to take the city of Edessa back from Baldwin, the new count of Edessa, before advancing to Antioch, maybe believing that Yehissian was able to hold out. One Armenian called Firuz had converted to Islam and pledged his service to Yoisian, although it seems that he was not being treated well and he may have had reason to betray Yorissian. So it appears that a liaison took place between Firuz and Bohemond of Taranto, where it was agreed that Firuz would indeed betray Yorissian. Bohemond gave the Antiochines the impression that he was going to head towards Edessa to engage with the forces of Kerboah. This may have caused the Antiochines to step down the intensity of their watchfulness, but Bohemond secretly turned back under the cover of night and scaled the walls of Antioch with the assistance of Firuz. Crusaders entered the city undetected and opened the gates where thousands of crusaders flooded in and massacred the population with no regard for the religious identity of the individuals there. The city had fallen to the crusaders. Yoisian had attempted to flee the city but ended up being decapitated by a peasant. Yoisian's son remained in the citadel. When Kurboa finally arrived at Antioch after his failed siege of Edessa he besieged the Crusaders within Antioch and Antioch was now just a city of rotting corpses Despite the fact that the supporting Byzantines and other Crusader leaders did not provide support to the Antiochian Crusaders the forces of Kurboa became disinterested in the siege and one by one The emirs among his ranks deserted him, leaving Kurboa with no chance but to retreat back to Mosul. Antioch was now in Crusader hands and had become the newest part of Outremer, with Bohemond of Taranto now ruling the Principality of Antioch. If you recall right back at the beginning of the episode, we spoke of how the Fatimid Shia Muslims were run out of Jerusalem by the Seljuk Turks almost 30 years previous to this. The Fatimids were keen to reclaim Jerusalem and now saw an opportunity to open a negotiation with the Crusaders in order to take back their city at the expense of the Seljuks and in return assist the Crusaders in reclaiming their lost Byzantine territory. The Crusaders were not interested in stopping short of Jerusalem and vowed to keep going. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast where we introduced the Crusades and uh, what actually went into the First Crusade. But of course, we haven't reached the end of the story. Next week, we're going to be concentrating all of our focus on the final siege of Jerusalem and what the outcome of that was. So don't, uh, don't forget to listen to next week's podcast episode to find out exactly what the outcome of this great First Crusade was. ...and this uh, incredible meeting between two rival cultures in the Middle East. The Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup. Um, As most of you will be aware, um, this is the competition where we've picked out 64 ancient teams. Uh, They can represent cultures or nations... And we've put them in a competition where they'll be subject to a voting system by the History of the World podcast listeners through all of our social media platforms. it will be the Tapper Talk Forum, the Facebook page, the Facebook fan group, the Twitter page, uh, the Instagram page. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's it. I can't think of any others. So yeah, I think that's all the all the places where you can vote. And um, we're narrowing it down so each week we're eliminating a team until we get down to a grand final. At the moment, we're in the round of 32. And last week was match number 14, which uh, put the Olmecs of Mesoamerica, ancient Mesoamerica, against the Athenians, uh, those uh, pioneers of democracy. And uh, the result of that was, with 77% of the vote, a resounding victory for the Athenians. So the Athenians will go through to the next phase of the competition where they will play the Mycenaeans, a fellow Greek culture from a different era. And um, next week um, we'll be seeing another match. So we say goodbye to the Olmecs, by the way, um, The Olmecs are now eliminated from the competition. Um, And I I don't know. I'm just having a quick glance through the teams. I think that's the last American team. That's the last team from the Americas that have been knocked out. What a shame. What a shame that is. Um, So, yeah, no more teams from the Americas. Uh, So, next week, um, we're down to the last two matches of this Uh, phase of the competition uh, before we uh, get down to the final 16 teams. so next week is match number 15 and we'll be seeing um, two cultures uh, from the same part of the world but from different eras Um, firstly we'll be seeing the Akkadians the Akkadians of course more famously known for Sargon of Akkad but um, the, the first poet Enheduanna um, of Uruk was uh, was part of the Akkadian dynasties, they defeated the Sumerians and took over their lands and established what some historians call the first empire of the world uh, all of that took place in Mesopotamia and uh, they'll be playing the Achaemenids so uh, fast forward almost 2000 years from when the Akkadians uh, settled the lands of Mesopotamia the Achaemenid Persians um, are their opponents from the first millennium BCE? Uh, they were the first true Persian uh, culture who took the lands of the Medes and the Babylonians and um, really established the, the first great Persian empire. And even took on uh, the ancient Greeks. They were so their, their imperial reach was so vast. So next week, the Akkadians versus the Achaemenid Persians. Please keep an eye on the Facebook page, the unofficial Facebook fan group, the Tapper Talk discussion forum, the History of the World podcast Twitter feed and uh, the Tapper Talk, uh, sorry, not the Tapper Talk, I've already mentioned that, the Instagram page. Keep an eye on all of those uh, from Monday to get your opportunity to vote. Listener messages and reviews. Now, we're always grateful for messages, reviews that you send into the podcast, so please don't be shy uh, and send your, uh, send your messages in. We did get a message this week. Um, I'm just going to pull it up now. Bear with me. So the message came from a man called Rafael Diaz, who, who wrote in and said, hello, Mr Hasler, very formal. I am Rafael Diaz Wild and I am a big fan of your podcast. The last thirty minutes of my day, I usually spend it in Istanbul, Jerusalem, or Tenochtit- Tenochtitlan through your podcast. I enjoy it a lot. I haven't, I haven't done Tenochtitlan yet, have I? Um. Anyway. <laughs> I've studied economics in Mexico and then a Master in Public Policy in Harvard University. Currently I teach behavioural economics and critical thinking through a course I designed. I don't know if you are planning to make your podcast in Spanish. I live in Mexico and I've passed the link of your podcast to friends and families and the usual response is that if it was in Spanish it would be great. Three observations may not be a trend. Although many Latin Americans can understand English, we are shy to speak it when we, and we hardly read in English unless for professional matters. I am a special case. I speak it regularly and 95% of the books I read are in English. I will go to the point. I would love to make the history of the world podcast in Spanish. If there's nobody doing it. And if you think it's a good idea uh, regards Raphael. Well, thank you Raphael. Um, you're not the first person to have approached me in terms of either language, uh, translations or uh, indexing for that matter. Um, I would just say to anyone who's thinking of doing such a thing is um, just consider the sheer amount of work that has gone into this podcast. We're now at maybe around in a region of 170 and 180 episodes in and, and each of those episodes are four to five thousand words in length so you can only imagine the amount of time and effort that would have to go into it uh, to translate the entire project so um, I think um, when you look at it that way you have to be a bit pragmatic about it and say can I really achieve this you know it sounds like a great idea doesn't it in principle to translate it but It really is like almost a full-time job, I would say, and and for no financial reward. So, um, yeah, great, great um, to consider it. But, yeah, I'm not sure if it's uh, wholly achievable. But, um, you know, good luck to you, Raphael, and thanks very much for the the email. And it's really considerate of you to think of doing such a thing. So thank you. Um, Anyway, if you want to support the podcast... You can support the podcast, um, just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, uh, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do, you become a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, and you are entitled to the associated rewards that go along with it. And uh, this week, we welcome into the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, Chris M and at ikelly731. So, thank you and welcome into the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Thank you so much for your support. Your financial support for this project really does go a long way. It enhances the uh, the library from which I I pull my resources from, and I, and I really do add some very valuable books that help me to construct. a a really good comprehensive podcast about the history of the world. So, and and that is thanks to you. So this podcast wouldn't be as good as it is without your contributions. And so anyone that is, is a history of the world podcast Illuminati member has made a contribution. Thank you so much. And give yourselves a big pat on the back. Uh, Anyway, that's it for another week. Thank you so much. And um, until next week, there'll be no history of the world podcast. Um, History of the World podcast debrief this week for Patreon uh, for Patreon um, members. Uh, just due to the fact that I would like to do one for the Crusades once they're completed. So there will be one next week for the Siege of Jerusalem and then there'll be another one the week after that which talks about the sources used for both of the Crusades episode this week and the one in two weeks' time. So that's the reason why there's not one this week. So if you're looking for it and you don't find it, uh, don't feel like you're going mad. It's just that we didn't do do one this week. Uh, Anyway, uh, that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Until next week, be good. The History of the World Podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast.com at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.